February is Black History Month, a celebration that has gained a lot of popularity in recent years and most recently further popularized by a global response to end anti-black racism sparked by incidents of racial injustice, most notably um, the killing of black men and women from police brutality in the United States, including uh, the killing of George Floyd, which, as I'm sure you are aware and remember, was a major catalyst for the global uprising and show of solidarity across the globe. But how did Black History Month come to be in the first place? Uh, let's go back in time and do some research, okay? Let's go. History.com. Here it is. The origins of Black History Month dates back to 1915, half a century after the 13th Amendment abolished slavery in the United States. In September of that year, a black American historian named Carter Woodson and a prominent minister, Jess Morland, founded the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, dedicated to researching and promoting achievements by black Americans and other people of African descent. In 1926, the first National Negro History Week was sponsored by that group, and they chose the month of February to coincide with the birthdays of President Abraham Lincoln and the notable abolitionist Frederick Douglass. So through the 1960s, there was a growing awareness to the struggles of black people in the United States through the civil rights movements, which furthermore popularized the Negro History Week, which evolved to become Black History Month. In 1976, President Gerald Ford officially recognized Black History Month, and he called upon the general public to, I quote, seize the opportunity to honor the too often neglected accomplishments of black Americans in every area of endeavor throughout history." End of quote. In Canada, the House of Commons officially recognized February as Black History Month in December of 1995, following a motion that was introduced by the first African-Canadian woman elected to Parliament, the Honorable Jean-Augustine. And Canada's parliamentary position on Black History Month was signed, sealed, and delivered when the Senate approved the motion to recognize the contribution of Black Canadians in February of 2008 as Black History Month. And that motion was introduced by Senator Douglas Oliver, the first black man appointed to the Senate. There you have it, people. Thank you to History.com. Okay, on that note, I want to introduce our guest on today's show. Her name is Teresa Nyabeze. Teresa immigrated to Canada at the age of 12. Uh, she talks about that experience um, in our conversation, so I will not spoil it. Uh, she is a mining engineer with over 20 years of experience in the mining industry. And she is a passionate advocate for young girls to take up careers in STEM. And even more passionately, Teresa is a strong advocate for inclusion and diversity in the workplace. Teresa is also an author. She is a brilliant communicator and a selfless community organizer. Ladies and gentlemen, without much ado, let's dive into the podcast. Thank you 
Teresa for taking the time to be on the podcast today. You know, you you and I got acquainted through work a few years ago and um you know, since then I've just been constantly blown away by the number of society changing things that you're involved in. You know, from your work at the Canadian Institute of Mining's Diversity and Inclusion Committee to your work with Rise, Sudbury and Diverse City STEM, you know, your your passion for STEM, I mean, science, technology, engineering and mathematics um, for our listeners who, who wonder what that means. Uh, it shines true. It shines true so very clearly, especially encouraging young girls to play in that sandbox. And that can be seen you know, from your book that you wrote. And we will talk a bit about your book today as well. And in 2020, you were recognized as one of 100 accomplished Black women. A recognition you share with a notable figure like the Honorable Jean Augustine. Knowing you, though, you're just getting started. And it thrills me to have you on the podcast today. So, Teresa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for such a warm welcome. No, it's uh, it's my pleasure to have you here. And um, we'll, we'll dive straight in. And at this point, most of our listeners would know how I start this show and the first question I ask. In fact, they can almost guess word for word what the first question is. And it is, here it comes. Where were you born? Right. I was born on the continent of Africa in a country called Zimbabwe, which is in the southern part of Africa, in a city called Harare. Do you have any fond memories of uh, growing up in Harare that you would want to share with our listeners? Wow, there are so many memories of this beautiful country, but I was reminded yesterday when I posted on Facebook um, a picture of my the house I grew up in. And for me, I was just sharing a photo. I, it was under the blue sky, and it was just you know having a nostalgic moment. And when I posted it, um, you know, I, I posted the fact that, you know, over to the left is the beehive that the brothers uh, harvested some honey from. And over to the right is the avocado tree where one of my brothers fell out from. And in that moment, my, my you know, my, my born and raised Canadian Sudburyan friends were like, oh, what, are, you know, what are the trees were there? And I said, well, there was a peach tree, a date tree. And then we started listing all these fruits that were just, that are on our property. Mm. And I realized the abundance. I mean, I grew up with guavas, lemons, peaches, mangoes, you know, mulberries. My sister reminded me that remember the mulberries that used to stain all our clothes. And so I grew up with an abundance of vegetables, of diverse animals around us uh, that I took for granted. But now in reflection, it's become such a fond rich memory of uh, all these things I got to see and taste. Yeah. Wow. Wow. No, you, you know, you just um, bring up some memories for me as well. My childhood memory growing up in, in Nigeria and um, just remembering some of the things we had around the, the, the what we call the compound, right? <laughs> it, it, yeah. It was beautiful memories you just bring up here, but that's, that's fantastic. So at what age did you move uh, from Zimbabwe to um to Canada and um what drove that decision I'm sure your parents but what drove that decision to make that transition so the way my my dad oh what I what I interpreted from what my father told me at the time was you know he 
this was around the time when, you know, HIV was really breaking havoc in Africa. And, you know, my dad has always been passionate about giving his children the best opportunities in, in the world. And um, because as a young person himself, he had gotten an opportunity at some point uh, to go to the UK for his, for some education. So I think he just really understood that you know, Zimbabwe is about to go through a transition. The healthcare system was really being challenged with the HIV pandemic was really kind of blowing up. And I think he was seeking to make sure that, you know, while he wanted to be boots on the ground to support the, 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 the upcoming pandemic that was happening in Zimbabwe, he also wanted to balance that with maybe getting, giving his children a different opportunity so mm. that maybe we could, you know, become empowered individuals and really fulfill our full potential. And so he had, um, through snail mail, had just seen a job advertised in Sudbury, Ontario mm. for a new cancer center they were opening and he applied and he got this job. And that's how we came to some of us, we're five children. That's how two of us out of the five ended up um, following my father with, with our mother to Canada. I think it was about a year and a half after he had first gone going to scope it out to see if it was a good place to be and a place where our family could grow. And that's how I came from to leave Zimbabwe at the age of 12 to this opportunity to be in Canada. Beautiful. Tell me something. How was that transition from beautiful, sunny Southern Africa to frosty Sudbury, Ontario? How was that for you as a 12-year-old kid? I would describe it as naive. And when I say naive is I didn't understand the privilege I had. I was surrounded by my aunts, my uncles, my cousins. I was surrounded by climate and animals and, and vegetation and, and food types and, and cultural nuances and things that were easy. I didn't have to process friendships. I just, I fit in. I, I knew how the bus worked, how the relationships worked. Mm. Um, the And when I left Zimbabwe, I had uh, completed a first term of high school, which is really grade eight in, in Canada. And I had been going to a weekly boarder. So I was a weekly boarder at this, uh, you know, this Catholic high school, boys and girls. And it was such a fun, organic, like leave it to beaver, cleaver, awesome experience. I didn't realize the magnitude of what I was leaving mm. to come to a place where Temperatures different, friendships are different. The music people are listening to is different. I mean, yes, I'd been around some people of different ethnicities, but definitely not diverse. So I, I knew that you know people who were not like like ethnically uh, Afro had different hair and texture and wore different makeup. But there was boom in Sudbury. The the sports are different and whatnot. So I would say I approached the move with a high level of nativity uh, and. But as a child, I embraced it um, because once I got here, I was very fortunate to befriend a Polish girl and a little sister who had actually come to Canada under very difficult circumstances of, you know, family loss. And so there we were, the Polish Ukrainian, Polish and Ukrainian, I must always say that. And possibly I'm supposed to say Ukrainian and Polish, but um, we became <laughs> best friends. So you can imagine, eh? linguistically mm. meeting up and just building each other up as little immigrants. So yeah, so loss and opportunity embedded together was what I would say about that move. Well, I can imagine what uh, richness that would have added to your experience. Let's unpack something um, very quick, quickly. And that's your parents. How's their experience moving to Canada? Could we talk about that a bit? Oh yeah, for sure. I love talking about my parents. When my mother was in Zimbabwe, she was a stay-at-home mom, which also came with 
being a, a businesswoman and whatnot, she used to, you know, have a, those machines where people would knit sweaters and whatnot. And she would once in a while employ a woman here and there uh, working with her. So I really got to see the transition. So my dad, who had always been working in hospitals, uh, my dad's move to Canada, I think, came with a huge awakening about, and Sudbury was not diverse at the time at all, like racially diverse or ethnically diverse. So I, I don't necessarily know everything my dad went through at the time. As I became older, there were snippets and clues to what that transition was like. I don't mm. necessarily think it was the smoothest transition because, you know, we're in 2022 and people enjoy this. Um, I mean, let's be honest, like when we hear diversity and inclusion, it's really rolling off our tips. So imagine what we're learning today about unconscious bias. And now think about 1990. What do you, what do we think was happening then? If today we have people like awakening to their biases, what would have happened in 1990 when talking about your bias wasn't even a thing. So I would say that's my dad's experience, but my dad has always been a curious person. Uh, so there's so much that he, people he got to know. I remember him being friends with the Chinese community and just like getting to know different people. Mm. My mom's transition, yeah. My mom's transition was so interesting because my mom, I learned later on, had never, had not completed a high school in Zimbabwe because of course of the, the the family and the structure and the prioritization of different people for 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 using those crucial family dollars to get educated she had at some point gotten married and then started a family and then her her schooling came from entrepreneurship so she probably would have stopped school maybe grade 10 so mm. what i love about my mom's transition to canada is she didn't have a community. She didn't have a business. So what did she do? She went back and upgraded her high, her high school in Sudbury. Hmm. Then she went to college. And she tells me at the time that she almost did nursing. Uh, um, but what happened is because she really wanted to start contributing to the family right away, she ended up becoming a PSW. And my mom ends up with this long career at one of the nursing homes in Sudbury, ends up demonstrating like, immense love for the residents and a calling that she didn't even know she had in Zimbabwe for giving love to people in their most vulnerable moments. So my mom's really, my mom's, my mom's transition to Canada is one of an awakening, a, a new career path that would never have emerged in Zimbabwe to something that came out in Canada and she was able to exercise her love and caring uh, for people. So I would say that's, that was their transition. Wow, that is a good story. That is a good story. And and tell me uh, about watching your parents go through that journey, watching the resilience and watching the work ethic they built. You just talked about your mom right now, how she went on, upgraded herself and did fantastic in her career. What did that do for you? How, how did that contribute to the person you are today? I believe that the person I am today will go through some challenges, but has seen a level of resilience that doesn't really make room for me to give up. Hmm. And I remember somebody um, asking me about that, like, where, where are you getting this resilience from? And it comes from watching my role models persevere, just keep going. Um, I, I'm like everybody else when something happens or experience something. I stop for a moment, right? You reflect and whatnot, but I just have it in built in me that I go on mm. and I love, and I think this is an Oprah thing where I, I must've seen this on Oprah, but it's around teachable moments. Like literally I, I view every experience so naturally. It's 
as a teachable moment. It's not necessarily like, you know, there's this saying, or I, I think there's a saying about being so Pollyanna where it's like, okay, try, you know, you always try to find the good in everything, but it's not so much that it's just that I, I do think anything is a learning. I just take everything and pivot it to, okay, this has happened. You can't take the unhappening from it. It happened. So what am I extracting from it? What am I building? What am I, what am I doing with it to, mm. uh, to make use of it? Hmm. And you know this this echoes um, something most of the guests on this show talk about. They're like watching the parents go through the things they went through growing up. That sparked something in them. Now, you went on to Laurentian University and then you studied mining engineering, right? Yes. Tell us about that. What informed that decision, and how was that experience? So not much informed that decision. <laughs> that's, the, that's the truth. Like not a whole lot, like literally not a lot, uh, if anything. So I will share with you that when I was in grade 12, and I, I don't know if you recall, if some of you might recall this, that uh, in, in, in uh, Ontario, we used to go do grade 12, then you would do grade 13, and then you would graduate and go on to university. Hmm. For some reason, I, I, I fast-tracked. I made a, a conscious effort and I fast-tracked out of high school. So there I was in grade 12, graduating high school with no real plan. There was no vision on the whole, like I'm graduating, what am I going to do next? And I remember randomly my English teacher, this really fierce woman looked at me one day, we're alone in the class. And she goes, Tressa, uh, what are you, so you're graduating high school, what are you going to do? And I said, oh, I, I don't know. And she goes, well, I can see you. And she mentions another girl who actually went on to become a doctor. Me and this girl, she said, I can totally see you two becoming doctors. And I'm like, oh, okay. And then I thought, okay. I guess I should register for a bachelor in science then, right? <laughs> so I registered for a bachelor of science and I start university and I'm young and, you know, it's not like I can really go to the bars and whatnot because I'm, you know, like my age and I'm not graduating with peers and whatnot. And so I befriended this older girl um, and she was so passionate and talented at biology that in that moment, I saw why I shouldn't be in this class. I would never be able to, to, manufacture an interest in biology to that extent uh so in that moment and to be and to be very frank uh the biology class was in this big auditorium and it was just the most perfect sleeping and napping environment <laughs> and so i thought this is not sustainable i'm not passionate um and so what i did is actually i thought okay i want something with no biology okay uh, going out of town isn't really an option mostly because i didn't even know what was out of town as a young immigrant and close to my family. And I thought, well, and of course my brother will want to take some credit and a boyfriend at the time would want to take some credit. However, the discernment at that time was really around no biology or biology. And so I took mining engineering uh, because, hey, it had no uh no biology <laughs> yes p.s the boyfriend became a husband at some point <laughs> oh. i know a plot twist i think they would love to take some credit but you know what no not giving it <laughs> oh no, that's a beautiful story that's a very beautiful and very candid story uh right there but um okay so you did go on mining engineering and then of course you started working in the mines up in in sudbury Tell us something. How was your experience working as a young mining engineer, working underground in Sudbury? How, how was that for you? Oh, I want to share one thing that did happen during university, which would become a, a connection that ended up coming into the workplace. Okay. 
at some point, so you can imagine if I, you know, I, I just kind of got into mining engineering. So it meant that at some point I had to do some soul searching, you know, second year of university where you're doing, you know, differential equations, fluid mechanics, and, you know, they're not easy courses. And there mm. I am, a person who's coming to this whole engineering thing by coincidence. And I, and, and also as a person who really enjoyed uh, fashion and dressing up and I had thought about becoming a lawyer at some point. So I really liked the idea of being in a court looking cute and defending people. I was watching a lot of Ali McBeal. So there was a whole lot of things going on there. And then the women I would interact with in engineering did not look anything like me. I did not seem to espouse any of those glamorous values uh, I, I had put on myself. So I thought, I'm in the wrong program. What have I done? <laughs> Luckily, one of my professors, his name was Dougal McCrath. He brought uh, this little group that had formed called Women in Science and Engineering. And it was these women. They were mothers. I thought they looked quite beautiful to me. They were just really nice women. And that little organization, Women in Science and Engineering, that came to our university sparked mm. something in me because I'm like, okay, I can see myself working in the profession. But it also, I think, at the back, back, back of my mind, planted this idea of, oh, you mean there's a need to get together, network, and support each other. But why? What's going on that you need that? But mm. I still went into the industry without even that thinking, really, about diversity and inclusion. And once I was in the workforce, uh, I would say my experience was very... Um, it was diverse. I had diverse experiences, you know, uh, some, some really high highs uh, and a lot of it really came from people coming together, working together and some lows of like, am I in the right place? Uh, doubting myself um, for sure. Mm. Mm. You do a lot of work in the space of inclusion and diversity. Your, your posts on LinkedIn, your, the committees you involve yourself in Canadian Institute of Mining, your part of the diversity and inclusion action advisory council, right? And yes, you, sure. you do a lot of work in that space. So how much did your experience working as a young mining engineer and some of the experiences you had, how did that inform the passion with which you approach diversity and inclusion today? You know, I, I don't necessarily connect the passion I have for diversity and inclusion with that particular experience of being a young engineer, although it's informed it for sure. Okay. But I, I think what's really happened for me over time is I've really come to respect the role that mining plays in the communities and societies and the amount of, you know, community building that's possible when mining companies do the engagement in a fully holistic full circle way. And I think that's, even impassioned me more. And what I mean by that is when I, and it's funny because I, I was, it's not, it's not funny, but it's interesting. I recently spoke to some high school students and I was connecting, I was saying, you know, think of the community you live in and think of who are your hockey coaches, who are who are the volunteers around. A lot of those people work for mining companies. Hmm. And then I took them a step back and I said, but for mining companies to want to invest in our communities, it means there's something in the ground that is worth extracting for value. And they want that value. And there are people, investors out there that have said, you know what? We want to invest in this company. This company is ethical. This company builds communities uh, and they can sell their product at a profit. And, and, and that's enthused them. So I think for me, that the, the fuel to my fire when it comes to diversity and inclusion is I just really see mining companies as huge community partners and I want different people who look differently to tap into the job opportunities and to help build the cultures of those mining companies so that they, they continue to be these 
great community partners. Wow. Wow. And for you, it's not just all talk. You you back everything you talk about in terms of diversity and inclusion, you back it with action. And one of the actions you've taken recently is you actually, you wrote a book. And the title of the book is Underground, My Mining Adventure. Did you want to talk to us about, briefly about the book? Yeah. And I smile because um, it's a very fond uh, thing, uh, you know, the fond, uh, one of my fond uh, pieces of art. You know, I, I love, I have a really strong love for people who are artists and musicians. Uh, I think of the impact that they make in the world. I, I don't know if anybody here, here would remember when, um, you know, Michael Jackson and a bunch of folks rang, uh, saying we are the world, right? Mm, yes. And, you know, I remember it, that was catalyzed by huge, you know, hunger issues that were happening in the world and whatnot. Uh, so for me, um, I love the idea of art communicating very important topics. Uh, so in Underground, My Mining Adventures, Maya is surprised by a trip to go underground uh, with her mother. And, you know, she has some preconceived notions of what underground is going to be like, the type of people who possibly work there. And she finds it very interesting and welcoming. And and, and, and a lot of those myths are debunked. Uh, and so, yeah, I just, I wrote that book because I wanted to, you know, get that art and, and possibly a message out into industry and then a message out. We keep talking about the pipeline and we need the pipeline in order to have these young people want to go into mining when they're older. So that's my offering to help engage young people with the idea of what is mining and to start to see, normalize it and to debunk some of the mythologies that they might be feeling and hearing and seeing. Hmm, that's beautiful. So uh, this drive to get more young people i'm sure especially young girls to come into stem take up stem and for you specifically you're passionate about mining this book is a way for you to do that it's a way for people to pick up the that piece of art like you call it and read it and say hey this is something i see myself doing this is something i hope i can do because this person in this book maya is thrilled going underground and all her you know perceptions or all preconceived notions she had about underground is a bit different and i see it now i see myself in it is that that is that correct that that's what you're trying to do? That's what you're trying to encourage people, especially young girls, to actually take up STEM as a path for them? Well, you know, I'm fortunate to be a mother of a little girl as well as a boy, but I mean, they're not little anymore, as they would say 15 and 17. But my daughter at the time that I wrote the book was 10 and she was turning 10. And I envisioned this 10-year-old, what's going through her, her head, for me, it's about putting options. You cannot become what you can't see. I mean, you can, but you're an outlier, right? You become one of the outliers that has this remarkable story to tell, uh, like myself, that, oh, by coincidence, I ended up in mining engineering. However, I don't want the I don't want people to go through what I went through, where my becoming a mining engineer is by sheer coincidence and, you know, like, it's circumstance. I want it to be more intentional. So... Of course, I, I love the diversity of, of employment options available to all of us as a society. I mean, you can imagine with uh, COVID has taught us that, you know, we need everybody. We need 
you know, we, we, we've always inherently known we need garbage collectors, we need people who work in grocery stores. But I think COVID has taught us that we need every part of the society functioning and mm. contributing fully. So for me, it's about putting another option and people on the, the, the place of children. I would fully love to see some of those children go on to be musicians, artists, nurses, doctors, lawyers. We need everyone. But what I, I don't like is the disproportionate um, representation of STEM in the choices that little people have. And so what I am passionate about is saying you can fit in in this, put it in your toolkit of possible career paths mm. and open yourself up to the possibilities. And who knows, you might find mining engineering or geology or becoming an aerospace engineer, uh, you know, or an environmental uh, engineer or environmental specialist as something that you could add value doing. Mm. Fantastic. <laughs> wow. So would you say that um, progress has been made, you know, in, in getting more young people to see the breadth of opportunities they have? I mean, just thinking back to your time and now, do you think that en enough has been done? I'm sure more needs to be done, but do you think that we've made en enough progress in opening the eyes of little people to understanding the opportunities and possibilities that are out there? Most 150% yes. Um, just a remarkable engagement. I mean, I think even the Girl Guides as a international organization has added some STEM type badges. I mean, the, the fact that these things are happening means that more children are getting those opportunities right in front of them at a very young age. I've seen uh, my own children, the curriculum that they go through in, uh, in, in, in schools changing and pivoting to allowing for more awareness. Uh, so I would say that, you know, there's this uh, change management um, philosophy that uh, ProSci Pro has this organization and they talk about ATCAR, right? Awareness, desire, and it's, it's a little acronym called ATCAR. I, I certainly think as a, as a world, we have done so much to raise awareness and like everything else, we have more to go. But I am really like if I could do it like a thumbs up or, or clap my hands, I would say, hey, hey, world, we're doing good. Like, I'm impressed. I mean, and, and, you, and you look around, there's so many um, different, uh, not factions is not the right word, but different clubs and organizations mm. uh, stepping. I mean, I know a girl right now who has started another organization where she's focusing on the on the demographic of black children who are just absent from computer science, from STEM, and she's working on that. And her and a partner, a partner are working on that. And then you've got people doing coding who are focusing on girls for coding. Mm. So I would say like the world, we deserve a big applause here. And we are making a difference because I, even my, my um, involvement in women in science and engineering, I have now seen children who we did events for now out in industry working as engineers and mm. the scientists so yes we're making a huge impact and it's it's just it's creating a snowball effect it's amazing fantastic fantastic i totally agree with you on that for sure before we leave um the book where can we find your book if we want to lay our hands on a copy uh, is that thank you uh the book is found on diversitystem.ca 
Okay. And I do have, I have a very cheesy email, which is, uh, I've had it for years, but it's diversitymining at gmail.com. So it's very easy to remember. Uh, but, you know, it really speaks to my, what some of my values. So, yeah, so you can always email me at diversitymining at gmail.com. And I love when, when companies and nonprofits as well buy tons of them and give them out. So, and I'm always open to that, to just get it in the hands of lots of little people and teachers and whatnot in, in, in the country. And the world. Thanks, Theresa. Now, let's shift focus a bit. And this 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 is aired in February, and February is Black History Month, mm. right? And we cannot do justice to this conversation without having the conversation around blackness. Now, mm. how has been a black woman, you know, influenced, shaped, or impacted? your career and um and how has that informed the work you do today if it has i I don't know but i'll let you speak to it you know your question reminds me of the things that we have a choice in and the things that are just that's so right so i wear the skin that i wear because that's how i was born right so Mm -hmm. uh, i went to um, a presentation the other day about branding um you know we think of nike and we think of all these brands and they you know create these logos and takes a lot of effort to create that brand for me i've always whether or not I knew it, I was showing up as a black woman and I was being received as a black woman. And it doesn't matter what, what situation it was, be it, you know, in workplaces and community organizations. Uh, but I would say that what I've always felt really strongly about is, you know, like movies like Hidden Figures that came out. Um, I've always been empathetic to the fact that people aren't necessarily aware of many people who look like me who have gone on to achieve great things in the field that I'm in. So I'll give an example. If I think of mining and I think of, okay, Teresa, name two Black women who are in, you know, very, in executive leadership, um, situ- uh, you know, occupations in mining that are making a difference in, in the world. And I, and I know they're out there, you know, I look at, especially in Africa, the tremendous amount of role models coming out of that continent. Um, but if I was to say me being in Canada, what have I seen? I've rarely, if ever, seen anyone who looks like me be an executive. So that has an impact uh, in what I do because I truly believe I, I do want to see Black women sitting in the boardroom. That is important for me. And some folks may say, but why is that important? Well, because I think representation matters mm. and having diverse vo- voices that have influence and authority to influence, accountability to influence, um, is very important. And and for people to not understand that, I think is um is is, pro- is problematic. So I, I seek to create that voice in everything that I do uh, as a black woman to say, uh, you know, even when we look at statistics or we look at reports, I always have that lens that okay, you know, this is speaking about women, but is it recognizing? The, the history of black women as well, because, you know, historically, and, and you talk about black, it being black history month, it, it's, it's always a time for me to refocus and readjust and say, you know, we talk a lot about women and I am truly a, a champion for women and, and really for people. My family knows I'm a lover of all people, um, but I do find black history month is a time that I take to pause to get more intimate with the statistics and the conversations around women and I try and hone in and ensure that black women's experiences as they, as they have this unique intersectionality of being women, of being black, of being, Mm. you know, and I, I, I want to make sure that I did, 
that those those experiences don't get drowned out as we as we talk about the whole. So yeah, so for me, Black History Month is a time of great reflection. Um, I, I try and contribute as much as possible. I live in Sudbury, Ontario, so even in that space, I make sure that we're amplifying voices during that month. Beautiful, beautiful. And, and we know that for progress to be made in society, there has to be collaboration. There has to be a huge cooperation between civil society, government, policymakers, and corporations to ensure that we're moving the needle on issues like racism, for example, right? So what would you say is the role of allyship you know, when it comes to moving the needle on systemic racism um, as it relates to Black people? Oh, I love... I love what I'm seeing in industry right now and what I mean by that. And if people want to get an idea of what I'm talking about is if you go on websites like the Catalyst website and you look at the logos of who's supporting them philanthropically for them to, the, the and Catalyst is an organization that really furthers the, this dialogue, right? If you look at many organizations, be it Lean In, be it uh, Catalyst, be it CCDI in Canada, you see a lot of organizations, uh, private business, investing in these uh, nonprofits or, you know, and making sure that their content and teachings are making their way into the workplace. So more than ever, people are getting trained up on unconscious bias. You know, I have um, a relative who works for a big car manufacturing company. And I was asking him, I said, hey, you're your frontline worker what what is the conversation about diversity and inclusion and say oh we all get trained on this we all get updated training on this so i would say that the role of allyship and I, I, like you asked me something you, you mentioned the the companies i think allies are in many many different levels i think companies private companies and other companies cannot we cannot underestimate their role as leaders in our communities okay mm. because as a company you can be an ally you can be an ally by demonstrating to your workers that you invest and you support community initiatives that are, you know, really helping, uh, you know, diverse communities thrive. That's mm. one way. So your allyship is in how you invest. It's in where you support your workers to be volunteers and where you 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 sponsor activities. I think that's at a company level you can you can be an ally. At a company level, you can also be an ally by making sure people are being taught concepts that they, let's be honest, there's so many, like even myself, there's so many levels of diversity that I'm not involved in. And, you know, I haven't taken time to learn about. And sometimes it's only in the workplace where your company brings something to the forefront and you have an aha moment mm. that influences the kind of community member you're going to be. So yes, yeah, so companies structurally can do so much to be great allies individually allyship can also be you managing up seeing that oh there's a gap the company i work for or the company you're working for might not be you know engaged in this big movement this international movement for inclusion and you bring a, a teaching to them and the thing about it is there's a, so much out there right now content wise i'm really actually inspired by this organization called leanin.leanin.org I, I think you have one of the executives at facebook or at metaverse as it's called now uh <laughs> cheryl sandberg is you know was a founder and whatnot and what's cool is they're putting tools out there that are free uh, i mean for people to learn how to be allies in fact so being an ally for me is uh, something that came up recently in conversation where i said i said a statement i said you know please folks let us not 
all of us adopt the term I'm an ally when your actions don't reflect your allyship. Allyship is such an action word. Uh, and one thing I'm learning is I need to understand moments where I desire to be an ally, but my actions have not reflected the allyship, mm. where I have not mentored anyone in that demographic to succeed, where I have not supported any of the, the causes, where I have not sponsored anyone. So I would say that my, my, my take on allyship is A, it's an action word. Okay. And B, it's something that you have to be very, very intentional about. And C, it's not a badge you give yourself. You know, you, you know, it's like us, all of us with uh, engineering degrees, you didn't just say, listen, I'm passionate about engineering, love engineering. I now have a bachelor of engineering. <laughs> no, you actually had to take a bunch of tests, a bunch. Of, it was actually a four year process. So, hey, all I can say is allyship is a process. It's something we should aspire to be. We, it's lovely when the community you seek to, to be an ally of identifies you as an ally through mm. your works so that's what i yeah so the allyship is something that i'm just really enjoying teasing out and understanding more these days amazing amazing now i'm going to ask you some very pointed questions or some some sort of advice you probably want to leave for senior leaders who might be listening to this podcast uh, as, as you and i have this conversation and you say allyship is an action word so yes. means they need to be doing very specific things. And I think you did mention a few things as you spoke right now, but I wanted to draw that out very clearly. So the audience knows. So what sort of things specifically uh, would you want allies? And then very specifically as well to senior leaders. And I say senior leaders because these people have the authority, they have the power to actually make and bring about real change in the organizations they work for. So what specific things would you encourage them to begin to do uh, as allies? Right, perfect. Uh, in a, you know, in my capacity as a, you know, co-chair of CIN's Diversity Inclusion Advisory Committee, um, you know, I, I get to see a lot of senior leaders who are taking action and I love it because what I like about it is that they've really converted the word allyship from being this kind of like nebulous, like inactionable word to actually actions. And what I mean by that is I have had the chance to see leaders who embrace and embrace certain events and fully support and fully take action. So for example, you'll have somebody who doesn't have the same skin tone as myself and yet is championing Black History Month or is mm. making sure International Women's Month gets, gets celebrated and is actively involved. Mm. They have no reason to really do it, but they're being an ally and they're saying, listen, for the things that I've read and what I've seen for the, for the, for the purpose that I want to flag the experiences of black people. And I believe in that we need to really attack racism. I want to be right there with you as you think of up of events. And, and so for me is if you're in a position where you are, um, you, you have a budget or you can influence other leaders, I would say, take action, get involved, you're welcome. Uh, don't live in your own story of, oh, but if I get too involved, maybe people that don't, don't live in stories that keep you out of the conversation, get in the weeds and start participating, lift the load. Because I got to tell you, the one thing about when you're in the DNI space that gets heavy is not having enough people who are willing to get their hands dirty mm. uh, or, or boots on the ground with you, walking with you and taking action. And, and, and you're saying, hey, listen, I know this month's coming up. Do you have enough money for a speaker? And, you know, getting into the weeds. So th those are, that's, that's one way. Um, another way that I think is going to really help us is 
allowing people in the communities you support or the, the initiatives, be it Black people, be it women, be it people with disabilities, giving them a voice at the table. And what I mean by that is the reality is there is a table. There's always going to be a table mm-hmm. where the people who are executives are going to make decisions. And the decisions are sometimes going to be informed on what's personal to them. And I say that because even if you look at medical history itself, they talk about how depending on your demographic, the issues that are prevalent for your for your demographic get researched more, get funded more. Hmm. So the only way I, I believe we can make a huge, well, not the only way, but one of the ways we can leaders can make a big impact is sponsoring. And we and I mentioned I purposely am not using the word mentorship because mentorship is great. It's awesome. You can really love people, but unless you sponsor them into giving them opportunities where they can actually eventually have a seat at the decision making tables. Uh, their voices won't always be able to to give a voice to what needs to be given voice for the demographic. So I would say executive leaders look for ways of implementing sponsorship programs that allow people to actually raise through executive ranks. And the thing, the other thing I would say is I challenge people to see people as peers versus being content with having people thrive as their subordinates hmm. because there's a, there's a difference because in reality you can be very comfortable with having a whole bunch of thriving subordinates but what i would challenge folks and even even if you think of nonprofits you know be challenged to make your your groups more diverse but with peers make the people you seek to help peers of yours so that they can really have a voice at the table so your policies can change in a remarkable way fantastic um i hope um leaders who eventually get the opportunity to listen to this podcast um you know we'll take that and run with it i think it will definitely do a lot to transform this journey and transform our society yeah and you know what just to add to that is if leaders do hear this and you want to talk more about it you know i mentioned my email earlier on but i would love to hear how that seed has taken root you know because at the end of the day we plant and we want to see these things germinate into some something. So I'd love to hear some feedback on that. And the email address again is diversitymining at gmail.com. Yeah. And I'm on LinkedIn as well. Yeah. Well, thanks, Theresa. Now we're getting very close to, to the end of this uh, conversation. It's been, it's been amazing speaking with you. Um, are there any parting words you want to leave? Uh, what The one statement I will say is there's a, it's an African proverb I, I, I've seen so often, and I might not say it right, but it's around, if you want to go far, you go alone, for sure, okay? And you can go very far alone, but if you want to go further, you need to go together. So what I would implore to people who, are, who look like me or sound like me and, or, or really anyone uh, is, listen, now more than ever, we have opportunities to connect. It, we have platforms that have been created specifically for connection. Find people who inspire you and don't be shy to reach out to them. Because at the end of the day, the only thing they can really say is no. And no is, my mom always taught me a really good lesson. She was talking about toxic friendships. She must have identified that I was embroiled in a toxic friendship, probably as a teenager. I said, Teresa, toxic friendships ask you for something and they only expect you to say yes when you say no they demand a yes so for example if i say hey stanley can you uh can you watch my puppy for the week and you say no 
our friendship is over. That's a toxic friendship, right? Mm. So the same thing I would say for people who are listening, it's around what you desire is probably matching to somebody's desire to help with or contribute, or they know someone. Don't be shy about finding connectivity, even in clubs and community groups, uh, because we, I think we as human beings, we're, 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 we're people that, that thrive with connectedness. So go further with others, but at the same time, don't forget that you can also be that light for somebody else. Um, Maya Angelou talks about something about somebody being a rainbow in her life, like kind of the, the source of light. And I think that I truly believe in my core values that each of us have an opportunity to be the light for somebody else. Mm. And I think that while you seek to go further by engaging with others, I would challenge you to be finding ways of being that light for somebody else. And I don't, I will not buy into anything that says that everybody does not have something to share. I think we all just by nature of being humans and growing up, <laughs> just being adulting, you have something you can give back. And I, I just implore people to find what that is and just do it and, and, and help us build better communities. You know what, Theresa? I don't want to add any more to that. That was perfect. <laughs> so uh, we're going to leave it here for today. And I'm sure sometime in the future, I'm going to bring you back on this show to talk more about some of the things that you'll be doing in the future. So Theresa, thank you very much for taking the time. I appreciate it. I am very much inspired by, by the things you've shared today. And I'm sure our listeners definitely will take uh, a whole bunch from this conversation. So thank you. And thank you again. It was my pleasure. And that concludes today's show. I hope you found it as engaging as I did. Take some time to think about the things Teresa and I discussed today and some of the tips that she dropped during our conversation and make a commitment on how you intend to engage going forward. If you haven't already, please Take some time to check out some of our previous episodes. I am sure you will find them very inspiring. Thank you for listening to this episode. Till the next one, I am your host, Stanley Opar. Stay safe.